everyone, and welcome back to The Apex, a weekly conversation with the titans and tastemakers of the automotive world. If you've been enjoying our podcasts and want to help us out, please do share them with your friends and leave a review for us on whatever platform you're listening on. Our guest this week is Mark Harrison, Managing Director at Praga Cars UK, the company with 114 years of engineering excellence behind it, but, until now, somewhat unknown to British motoring enthusiasts. With his significant experience in launching performance vehicles into a competitive marketplace and knowledge of just what it takes to keep a motoring brand focused on its customers, Mark joins us today to talk all things Praga, past, present and future. Mark, welcome to the Apex. Hi Hector, nice to be here. Nice to meet you. So before we talk about Praga, could you first maybe introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us a bit about your career today and how you ended up at Praga? Yeah, I'm not sure I'm a titan or a tastemaker of the automotive industry, <laughs> but um, hopefully I've got a little bit of story to tell that people might find interesting. I mean, my you go back to the start, really. I, I didn't start out in the automotive industry at all, so um, I've got kids at the moment sort of looking at university and going to university, and I can, I can stand there and say to them, it doesn't really want to matter what you do at university because I, I had nothing like that in my past apart from just a, a general love and interest in cars, really. That's always mm-hmm. been there, um, and racing cars. Um, I actually started out as a fully qualified landscape architect of all things, but um, did that for a few years. And then I just, by sheer coincidence and luck, really, I ended up working on the Camel Trophy in 1995, which um, not all your listeners will know what the Camel Trophy is. Those who don't, it was a Land Rover. Yeah, sort of like it's a knockout of, you know, World Cup of off roading, really. And (laughs) I mean, it was an amazing, amazing event because it was, there was no. Budget wasn't an issue. It was really was the, a pure, um, a pure off-roading activity. It mm. Went to weird and wonderful places, and I was lucky enough to work on the, the event that was in Central America in 1995, mm-hmm. and um, just on the PR team really that was supporting it through a company called Jardine PR, run by a guy called Tony Jardine, who some of your listeners will know from his past sort of well, his Formula One history, but also the fact he's the commentator. I think he still does the rallying stage at Goodwood mm-hmm. and things like that. So worked for Tony Jardine PR on the Camel Trophy. Not knowing at all what automotive PR was, I didn't know what a press office was, didn't really know what journalists did, but um, just helped out, loved it, and uh, and was taken on by Jardine PR uh, to work for Honda, and um, mm-hmm. shows how long it was ago, because Honda were the car sponsor for Manchester United, and um, Glasgow Celtic and Glasgow Rangers, so you couldn't get Honda now at Manchester United, I'm sure, but um, <laughs> uh, so we... we we, and I loved football as well, so I, I sort of went to work for them on working on their sponsorship of Honda with the football clubs. So we did British touring cars as well. So this would have been late 90s, the sort of David Leslie era. So it was a really good era of British touring cars, so I did, did a bit of that. I then I was asked to go and work for Ford in their press office and um, worked on the, the really sort of, not the sexy bits of, bits of Ford, but um, the interesting bits for the company, the bits that actually made the money, so the commercial vehicles, mm-hmm. but also the technology division looked after some of the PR for the Dagenham factory and things like that. So I cut my teeth really as a, a sort of communications professional there because part of that involved the closure of the Dagenham car plant and things like that. So really mm-hmm. sort of got under the skin of automotive communications and PR, which was amazing at a company like Ford. Uh, and then BMW asked me to go and move to, to Bracknell, to BMW UK headquarters, to help launch the new Mini. And um, so that was a bit of a dream come true, really. Um, amazing job to launch the new Mini Partly because it was a fantastic car, and any, anybody who's bought the first generation, um, the R53 version of the, the new Mini, will know the, you know the engineering was amazing on that car. Mm-hmm. Uh, BMW did a great job on it, but also we had a sort of slight challenge of a German brand telling the world what a British iconic car car brand was. So we had to sort of deal with that, which was fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, 
stayed at BMW for about nine years in total and then went to McLaren to launch the car brand there. So I was the PR director for McLaren Automotive when that was launched and did that for a couple of years, then was asked to go and run McLaren's Middle East operation. So I set that up and ran the business over in the Middle East, then came back to headquarters and did a number of jobs like managed the sales and marketing for the McLaren P1, which was a, a privilege really, an amazing thing to do. Mm. Left McLaren after a few years and, and went into consultancy and have worked for people like Rimac on the launch of what was called the um, Concept 2, uh, now the Nevera, and um, Pininfarina on the Batista electric hypercar launch and things like that. So, um, yeah, and then a couple of years ago, I got a, a call from these crazy folks at Praga and said, would you come and talk to us about our business and what we're doing? And um, loved it when I, I met them, really liked what I saw, liked their ambition, um, like their their honesty, there's no there's very very little bureaucracy and politics at Prague. It's just classic sort of Central European. This is what we're doing. Let's get on and do it. But combined with that, that it's it's got this rich history that very few mm. people know about. So yeah. you know, for someone like me that's background is a lot of communications, it's great to come in at, at this sort of as a, gra- a brand is growing, but yeah. to have that history to tap into. I was going to say, I mean that that's a that's an amazing CV. But let's talk about um, Praga, the company, its history. As I mentioned in the introduction, I'm sure that some of our audience this is the first time they're hearing about it, but it's been around for quite a while. So could you tell us a bit about it? Yeah, just a small matter of 114 <laughs> years. So, you know, it's, it's the oldest car brand you've never heard of. The, the good thing with the folks at Praga as well is that they're, you know, they're not, they're not embarrassed about that. They're not ashamed about that. It, it's, it's built up over those years purely as an engineering-driven mm-hmm. business with zero sales and marketing in effect. So, you know, better that way around than the other way around. It's got its, it's, got its heritage. It's got its... Um, foundation of of making things and you know that's really at the heart of the best car brands historically have been been that way you know you look at bmw and that's where bmw came from mm. purely engineering driven and bmw is a good sort of comparison in that praga historically made really anything with a motor mm. so before communism really defined a lot of praga's history they they made everything race cars road cars airplanes trucks tanks um, we've even found praga vacuum cleaners and <laughs> and um you know, it literally is anything that had a motor they, they made. Then communism happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure it's a bit more complicated than that. As <laughs> yeah, know, but, just um, like yeah, the, <laughs> but, the, the, the short version and, is it happened. Yeah, and, and Praga was selected by powers that be to make trucks and gearboxes and axles and tanks for the communist world. They actually, before communism, they actually made more cars than Skoda and Tatra combined. And everybody would have mm. heard of Skoda and Tatra. Mm. Um, but I think partly because of their success at making cars then the communists sort of said well you can make the we don't need cars or racing cars we need trucks and tanks so you can make those and i think they left skoda and tatra alone to sort of get on make some cars Mm -hmm. so that defined much of praga's history as a as a truck Mm -hmm. gearbox axles manufacturer and um you know the way i sort of tend to put it to audiences is is if if I'm in a room with people and I say, you're a communist who needed a truck, you will know who Praga is. But <laughs> I'm guessing not many people in the room at the moment are communists who needed a truck. So, um, But then post-communism, the business has, has, has worked and produced unbroken since for the last 114 years. So post-communism, they really tried to find their feet as an independent private business. And as a, a lot of people know, post-communism, a lot, that takes a while. You, you're going from a into a completely different commercial mm. market. So it takes a while, but they've, you know, they've continued and they've, they've tried motorcycle, enduro motorcycles in the past and, and continued down that path of mm. making trucks. So there's the, the core business really is um, the sort of the, the sexy bit of it at the moment is the racing cars mm. and the go-karts. Mm. 
Um, we've also got an airplane, a short takeoff and landing airplane that's hopefully going to appear next year. Uh, but then in, in the background, they still have a what they call the automotive division, which is the truck side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's it's still a multifaceted organisation. Isn't it doesn't just work in um, in in cars and, and trucks either. There's other parts mm. of the business, but but these are the bits that. I'm working on are the really the, at the moment the racing car mm-hmm. side of things. So let's talk about the the, the sexier bit of um, Prague. I mean, we can leave the, the vacuum cleaners uh, yeah. <laughs> to one side. As far as I'm aware, you, your main offering is the Prague R1, which is an amazing looking racing car. Could you tell us what makes it special? Who's it for? What the what the design thoughts were behind it? Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing about the R1 really is that what what makes it special now. Is the fact that when when the project was started seven eight nine years ago, mm-hmm. again because the company really focused on the engineering design rather than the, the sales and marketing, they, they they sort of did it opposite way that most normal companies would do. They didn't look at where they could produce a racing car in a series and look at the rules of that series and design a car around the rules. They basically designed what they thought was the purest, most beautiful looking racing car on the planet, and then worried about where it went racing. The problem there is that. You know anybody who's seen the R1 can see see where that could cause issues. In the in the early days, customers that did see it and took the plunge and, and bought a car would race. It could take on prototypes mm-hmm. because of its its sort of its its nature, its structure, its aerodynamics. It's you know it sits naturally as a racer that can take on radicals and, and these sorts of cars, and it would beat them. And so the owners of the radicals would say, "Well, that's a GT car because it's got a roof." So it, it would also <laughs> race against GT cars. And because of its aerodynamics and downforce abilities that that produced, it would beat them. And the owners of GT3 cars would say, "Well, it's a prototype." Yeah. So, so it's taken a, it's taken a few years to really get it accepted. And and certainly in the UK, a lot of that is down to the perseverance of our dealer partner over here, VR Motorsport. Yeah. In that Vincent, who runs VR Motorsport, saw the car. I mean, this is how it really worked at Prague. He saw the car at an Autosport four or five years ago loved what he saw mm-hmm. and just thought well i'll buy that and see what happens and, and try and go racing yeah. with it see where i can and take he had, it yeah yeah and and it's you know it, it, it led to discussions with motorsport uk as it is now and which meant he had to engineer a roll bar for the car which is a bit daft when you think it's a full carbon mm-hmm. chassis a full carbon monocoque full with roof you know the roll bar really does very little mm-hmm. you know has has no purpose but but rules are rules mm-hmm. so he engineered a roll bar got it approved and got it into brick car who took it in and now we've found ourselves in a really strong position where we've announced a one-mate race series for next year. So oh, wow. it, yeah. it is genuine sort of snowball gathering momentum. And it's partly because the more, you know, the more people see the car, the more people love it and, and get it and, and want to get involved in it. So it does feel like there's a huge momentum at the moment. So because that was one of the questions that we had here when we were looking at the, the R1 was, you know, what is its direct competition? Because it's basically, it looks like, quite a fancy prototype and as you said yeah. it's all all carbon it it, it it looks a lot more high performance than some of the gt cars we see and yet it kind of from from reading about it you get the impression that it's fairly affordable to run as well i mean compared to something you know much much fancier um yeah so so what would you say is it's kind of direct competition well, it- I know everybody answers this the same way. They say, well, it has no direct competition, but it genuinely (laughs) has no direct competition. You know, at its price point, it's under £200,000. But at the same time, now that we've increased demand and interest in the car, Mm. if if you buy a car as a team, you can pretty quickly see after, you know, you can 
you can it can wash its face as an investment mm. after one season and start to make profit after after the second season when we see what the teams are currently charging their drivers to race in the car mm. how much it costs to buy the car or, or take the car on finance and then the relatively low running costs it, it starts to stack up in all sorts of directions because not only that but it also the car you know i'm biased but the car looks great i mean it, everybody who sees the car racing loves the way it looks mm. The, the the racing when they do take take on each other is really toe to toe. So it appeals to sponsors as well. And and I think the program we've built up this year and certainly what we've got planned for next year, the audiences we've we've started to really tap into, both motorsport but also general sort of fan base mm. of some of the drivers that race with us, it, it's moving on a on a pace there. So I think as well as that, the engineering of the car itself, you know, it's now it's got a, a really reliable two litre Renault Alpine turbocharged oh, engine right. Hewland gearbox that is well known and and easy to maintain so the you know the powertrain is is reliable trusted easy to look after mm-hmm. because the car's light you know it's only 640 kilos uh, the the wear on the tires is 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 light as well so it, it stacks up on a whole number of levels mm. as, as far as it in the marketplace so yeah it's we've, we've got Great hopes for it. So, because you mentioned there that you're getting new people coming through the door. I mean, I'm sure that counts for sort of new kinds of customers. But one thing that is interesting that I first came across Praga when I was doing some sim racing and online karting back in the dark days of of, of lockdown. Yep. And I noticed that you guys have been growing a presence in that space. How did that all start? Well, it was, yeah, it was a bit of a combination of a natural interest from some of the people involved in the sim racing world anyway, mm-hmm. we have a, a quite a long-standing partnership, friendship with Roman Grosjean and Roman had started his RHG esports team. So there's a lot of conversation about, you know, we should do this anyway. Mm. Combine that with the challenges of last year or the, and, and the concern over the, the potential of not going racing at all mm. last year, mm. then it seemed a natural thing to do. So we we sort of dipped our toe in it and and enjoyed what we did and I, I think you raced and we we got you know we did a little bit of racing sim racing and it, it went down really well um and again it's a it's a bit like the real racing the car looks great and in the <laughs> sim and, and um so i mean we were really lucky in the fact that we pretty much had the full race season on the track as well yeah. um yeah. despite all the challenges last year which is is, is really testament to well motorsport uk brick car everybody involved mm. in in doing the right thing to allow us to go racing last season so it worked from both ends really and and i think that looking ahead to what that what that did for us was it 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 opened up conversations uh, as far as getting talking to sim racers about mm-hmm. going real racing and i guess you want to talk about that as well in, in a minute Absolutely. but also it does mean that we, we've sort of tested the water a little bit in the mm-hmm. world of sim racing and we've got some amazing plans for next year in the in the world of sim racing i can't go into any detail mm-hmm. on at the moment but um uh, we'll we'll really move things on on the, the pace there so it, yeah it worked really well yeah so, so i mean let, yeah let's talk about uh, the sim racing because i think it's quite an interesting approach that you guys have taken you've been working with some well-known um automotive youtubers i think jimmy broadbent is yeah. one of the most popular ones and it's interesting that, that obviously i mean you can you can talk about this but you've paired people like that up with with professional racing drivers people like Jem Hepworth um, what does this give praga working with these these youtubers well first and foremost someone like jimmy 
you know, he's done his YouTube films through this season, Racing With Us, mm -hmm. that have been watched by, watched over three and a half million times. Mm. Um, so it gives us a huge audience off the bat for a brand that nobody, as we said earlier, nobody had ever heard of. Yeah. So, and I, I'm quite lucky in a way in this area because uh, my experience of gaming was really going into my son's bedroom and shouting at him saying, what are you doing wasting your time playing or watching um, Fortnite? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, it, it's a different world to me. So I, I, I sort of come at this from a position of knowing nothing about virtual, about gaming mm -hmm. and how, how we came across Jimmy. And, and Jimmy's, a, you know, Jimmy's been fantastic because he started the season, he'd never raced a car in his life, mm -hmm. and yet he's been thrown into an R1 full downforce race car in a competitive race series and um and and did really well he, mm. he built up slowly through the season and ended up winning the last two races at the final round two weeks ago with his partner Gordy Much so mm. uh yeah and he was in tears at the end of it and, and you saw that and you thought wow that you know you could when I, so how it all came about really was that we we sat around and thought well we need to build the mm. brand it's you know there's a good story here how do we do that and mm -hmm. uh, the owner of the company sort of threw down a challenge and said well you know, if, if I send you five factory cars to race in Brit car and you can populate those cars mm -hmm. with um, an interesting group of drivers who will raise our brand presence, uh, will that work? So I, I said immediately, yes, that'll work. I put the phone mm -hmm. down and then I thought, oh my God, what, what, what do I do now? Um, but, I, you know, I made some calls, I spoke to a few people and mm -hmm. the nice thing is you, if you find the right people to do this and, and I, I met them all and looked them in the <laughs> eye and you can, you can see if people committed to this because you know you know someone like Jimmy if he doesn't take it seriously he's going to look pretty daft to his, his fans and followers so anybody anybody who put their hand up you knew they were going to be committed to it and 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 deal with it really well so so Jimmy but Jimmy Jay Morton mm. who some of the your listeners will know who's worked really well with us this season Ben Collins has joined us the um Stig from Top Gear, James Walker, Mr. JWW, and, and a, a number of others that, that came along through the season, mm -hmm. and um, and and it was it was great to see you know how seriously they all took it. Mm -hmm. They you know it really was a chance for them to to raise something you know that, that really challenged them, and so yeah, and it's just raised the, the awareness of the brand massively, and um, you know we hope we'll be bringing some of these guys back next season. Yeah, I mean, do, do you think to an extent? The, the sim racing gaming community is sometimes underestimated when it comes to, I think, car racing in particular. The reason I ask is that, you know, I've spoken to a number of these guys over the years and what does come out is that, you know, it's not just someone playing a game, it's people are setting up their cars digitally. They're learning about the history of these machines. They, they feel a real bond with them that seems to translate into real life a lot easier than, than you would expect. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a serious business. It's you can you know the fact that all the F one drivers, most of the F one drivers are, are doing it now. Roman's mm. got his esports team. Um, Jimmy, I think Jimmy's again is a great case in point where he turned up at the first test day, sort of pretty much crapping himself, I guess, but mm -hmm. but got in the car. We had an awful race weekend at Snetterton where it was bucketing down mm. solidly for two days didn't balk at that just got in the car and just got on with it and mm. you know i think and it's not just him either i think you see this across the board now gordy much who raced with him at donington park is a great example where gordy gordy's background is re real racing yeah. uh, but he's also one of the fastest drivers in, in roman's rhg sim racing team now mm. so there's, a, there's an absolute correlation but i think fundamentally 
you know, the, the difference is that, um, and Jimmy would say this, is that it's the real racing is, you know, a huge step up in, in mm. just it really, the, I guess the risk against reward sort of, you know, both are higher in real racing than in sim racing mm. and yeah. for all the obvious reasons. So, uh, but I, that's been the most, one of the most exciting things about this year actually has been seeing how that there's that combination between sim and real racing. It's fascinating. And as you say, it seems to translate very well often. Yeah. And something else I wanted to ask, I mean, just drawing on your, your career a bit and drawing on where we are um, in the automotive space at the moment, uh, plenty of changes going on. I mean, you know, your career has been deeply involved in lots of performance car brands. I think ownership of performance cars now, the nature of it is is changing. What, what's, your, what's your take on it? Are, are really enthusiasts going to migrate more to the track now to get their kicks? What's your kind of perspective on it? Yes, <laughs> simple answer. No, I, th- I think, um, you know, I've, I've been really lucky in the last few years in being at the heart of McLaren as they launched their road car business mm. in, at a terrible time to launch a road car business. Mm. You know, it was in the middle of, um, well, 2009, 2010, when the, the world was in a terrible state. And the last yet, time it was in a terrible yeah, state. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> and um, and have developed their brand um, you know, it, it's not been perfect for them, but they're up and running. And certainly, you know, the feedback we got when we launched the 12C at McLaren was um, mm. that certainly our major competitors at the time, I think they thought that McLaren would give up after the first car and, and well, that didn't happen. So mm. we, I've sort of seen that come through and then been really lucky to work on the world of electric hypercars. Um, they have their own challenges in, you know, one of the, the, the biggest challenges at McLaren was actually um, getting people to put an order down on a McLaren P1, weirdly enough, mm. in the fact that when by the time we, the first car got to a customer, we had a huge list of reserve list of pe- people wanting to buy the car. But um, mm. initially, it was quite a, a challenge because, simply because people, it was a new technology, you know, a hybrid supercar, and mm. uh, there's plenty of people that wanted it, looked the way it looked, but actually were saying, well, I, I'm not going to put any money down until I test drive that because I haven't got a clue what that means. Yeah. Uh, well, that moved on a pace with the electric hypercars. And, and I think, you know, the, the three brands that are doing electric hypercars are finding that moment a challenge is that mm. um, it's for, on paper and in pictures, it looks great, but actually it's, I want to drive, test drive this car. So, so you, you'd now get to a, a sort of area where, uh, you know, you'd, what's the next move. And I think the next move, as you say, will be to, for cars to go on tracks because, you know, both, Technology-wise and performance-wise, mm. cars, you know, 700 now is a 700 horsepower is a sort of low base for a supercar or a <laughs> yes, hypercar. Exactly. So, yeah. you know, it, it's 800, 900, 1,000 horsepower. Well, you know, you can't translate that onto the road. The tyres won't allow it. The roads won't allow it, certainly in mm. the UK and places like that. Um, and also legislators won't allow it. So mm. as power is going up and weight is going up, there's less opportunity to drive that car on the road. And so you're seeing, certainly in the States, a huge growth of private motorsport clubs and private tracks mm. with 20, 30, 40, 50 garages. We've, we've got a, a partnership. We're working with Escapade at Silverstone, actually, mm. um, the private sort of members club that's being developed at, at mm. Silverstone. And so that's only going in one direction. So as, as there's more need to have cars going on tracks, there's more demand mm. being built up to, to support that. And, um, and, you know, certainly it works for us. If you look at the R1 as a potential track car, and uh, we did we did build design and build a one-off prototype 
road legal version of that actually the mm-hmm. R1R we can you can sort of certainly see that as owners of hypercars and supercars move to the tracks mm. they will suddenly realize really even more how compromised their road cars are for the tracks <laughs> you know Absolutely. and um so we'll yeah. be looking for to almost go back to go to lower power lighter weight um and really test their abilities on the track so it's not mm. about testing their cars it's about testing their own abilities so you know, it's it's a step clear, nearer to them than being a racing driver, and and mm-hmm. we're ready to to take them on and and help them deliver that. So I think this is part of the reason I went to Praga actually, because I felt two years ago that this was a, a, a really interesting mm-hmm. area to look at, and mm-hmm. uh, even more in the last twelve months, it's just I think it's accelerating towards race tracks. Yeah, I mean, the irony is the the racetrack will be where you get you know the smaller wheels, the smaller chassis, smaller brakes, less wasteful, you know, more resourceful yeah. tire management, you know, technologies. It's quite funny that the racetrack seems to be where where, where all this stuff is actually going to. Yeah, be and, and I think the, the challenge for the big manufacturer, call them big manufacturers, but you know the, the mm. supercar brands is that they still need to sell compared to Praga, say, a huge volume of cars, mm. um, and the, track you know they will still need to design cars for the road and uh, uh, Prague works in an organization called ESCO European Small Car Association mm-hmm. which um you know with, was founded I think by McLaren and Aston Martin when I when we launched the 12C back in the day at McLaren mm-hmm. and that's really you know I guess you call it a lobbying organization into Brussels to sort of really lobby for the fact that small volume car brands which are mainly supercar manufacturers let's face it need support and I think you know that's that, that's going to be a really important part of of how we work because legislators fundamentally are not car people so they mm. not, they don't really care too much about how beautiful a Pagani wire is or you know the history of Lamborghini it's irrelevant to them they you yeah. know and for all the right reasons they want to lower casualties on the road and keep the air clean so you know absolutely right but um so we're doing a lot of work at the moment trying to really convince the powers that be that there is a place for these what what we, you and I would think are as beautiful, mm-hmm. emotional, engaging products that that appeal to enthusiasts because enthusiasts are designing them and making them. So, yeah, yeah there's, there's the track side of things is the future, but also there needs to be work to make sure that the cars that we love are still going to be viable on the road. Yeah, absolutely. So, going to ask, you know, so what lies in the future for Praga, near future, mid future? Can we look forward to an exciting 2022? I can. <laughs> <laughs> Will you work there? <laughs> um, yeah, it's um, we've we've got some um, ambitions that uh, will really stretch our small team of people. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's it, fundamentally the first the first major priority at the moment is we've announced uh, probably a year ahead of schedule a one mate race series for the UK called the Praga Cup 2022. Ownership has committed to at least sixteen cars on the grid. Awesome. Um, because that's obviously always the concern for anybody entering a new one-mate race series is, are there going to be enough cars on the grid? Well, absolutely. Um, the, we have committed to there will be 16 by hook or by crook. Um, so that should drive interest in that. We've, well, we're seeing interest already, frankly. So we've, we've, we had mm-hmm. 10 cars on the grid at Donington Park two weeks ago. So we've, that, we're looking forward to launching that. That'll take up a lot of our time and, and energy to do that properly because then then the plan for Praga is to really take the UK as a template. We're not big enough to do all this outside of one market at the moment, but if we mm. do it properly in the UK, the rest of the world looks at the UK for, for its motorsport and, and mostly for its supercar heritage. So um, we'll then look at how we take uh, what we're doing to the USA, to the Middle East and to other markets. We've set up a small initial global dealer market. So um, uh, we've got some really nice partners in Benelux, Australia, 
Poland, California, um, UAE, out of Dubai and, and the UK. So we'll, we'll work with them again to, to build up their um, work with us. And we, as I said earlier, we've got a, we've got a pretty amazing SIM campaign um, to announce quite soon, which will raise a few eyebrows. But you can, you can see, you can imagine with the sort of partners we've got with Jimmy, with mm-hmm. RHG, that um, we think we can do something pretty special there. The, mm-hmm. the karting division that I, I don't really work directly with, but the karting division is is growing and looking at electric carts. And and clearly for for me, there's a funnel of sales there. If we can engage 14, 15, 16 year olds in our karting business, then it's a yeah. it's a quick step into the R1, which is a great racing car for novices, as as we've talked about. So, mm-hmm. um, lots of things going on, and one or two other things that I can't talk about here and now that will um, appear next year as well. Awesome! All sounds really exciting. Um, we're coming up on time now, so I've just got some quick fire questions to to end with. So the first one is: What is your dream track or road car? I, I well, I, yeah, I think probably. Um, there's three cars and they've all got the number one in them, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so at BMW UK, we had an amazing heritage fleet. The PR director mm-hmm. there, Chris Willows, built up a really great fleet of cars. And because um, I'm a sort of kid of the 70s, then yeah. the BMW M1, um, 70s and 80s, the BMW M1 was, we had a, a red BMW M1 that a lot of your lot of oh, listeners wow, will have yeah. seen at various events around the UK. And, and uh, yeah. it usually turns up at... Um, Mr. Sunday Scramble and things like that. but And I once mm-hmm. got the, the opportunity to drive that, which was amazing. That was memorable for me. Um, and then the McLaren F1, for all the obvious reasons, mm-hmm. having worked at McLaren and seeing the cars every day at, um, at the Boulevard, never got the chance to drive one. But then I did get the chance to drive the McLaren P1 as in the development phase of that. And mm-hmm. that was just incredible, you know, unforgettable. So, and, and they're all sort of road stroke race, race track mm-hmm. cars as well, which is really nice. Um, and what, was there one more? No, M1, F1, and P1. That'll do. <laughs> okay, so second question is your favorite racing venue? Um, I, I, I guess really it's sort of, it's, it's, as a kid really, that sort of sets your views, doesn't it, for the rest of your life. I used to spend a lot of time at Cadwell Park. My dad used to mm. take, take us racing to watch racing at any opportunity. So I spent, I'm from Lincolnshire. I spent a lot of time at Cadwell Park, which I just love as a place. Yeah. Um, and we used to go to the Speedway and the stock cars at Boston. That's not there anymore. But, um, you know, a nice dirt oval track in Boston, Lincolnshire. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, back in the day as well, we used to go to Brands Hatch quite a lot in the days where you could literally just turn up on the gate and mm. walk into a Grand Prix. So um, we did a lot of that because my dad spent a lot of time in Kent before, before we had kids. Mm-hmm. And um, more modern times, I guess, I had an amazing experience at the Asmarina racetrack um, when mm-hmm. I was working out in the Middle East. I, got, I persuaded Chris Goodwin to... Give me a lap of Yas Marina in a McLaren P1 at, at full chat and um, as a passenger. And it, the great thing about that was it meant I could get out and I could say to Chris, right, I never have to go and do another bloody passenger ride again in my life because it's <laughs> never going to be any better than that. So <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. And um, so final question is, what's one piece of advice you've got for someone thinking of getting into amateur racing? Oh, I, I, I think probably, I don't know, how would you put it? Be fast and be nice. And I don't know if those two things go together, <laughs> um, but I, I think you know. As I say, I don't, I've never, I haven't worked at the coalface of motorsport before this this job. Mm. So a lot of it is, you know, I've I've spent time with racing drivers, but actually seeing them in action. I think you look at some of the, the the kids that are out there, and they've all got dreams of being professional racing drivers, and rightly so. And um, but I think the key point to make is that 
only a small percentage of you will become a professional racing driver. So for the 95% that won't actually become a professional racing driver, mm -hmm. there's still lots of opportunities to work in motorsport. So, you know, work hard at your dream, be fast, be committed to being fast, but also think about um, at the end of the day, you, you want to be able to pick up the phone to somebody you you were met at the racetrack a few years before and, mm -hmm. and then remember you in a good light. So I think, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of young drivers out there who will tell you they're the fastest thing out there, which, and, but actually you want, you, you know, you need to keep relationships strong with people and, and build a good network, frankly. I think that's, that's, that's as important. That's some very good advice to end on. Well, Mark, um, we're up on time. So just leaving to thank you very much for such an interesting interview. Absolute pleasure. No, it's great. Thank you. The Apex is powered by Custodian, a new platform for car enthusiasts designed to help you manage your car from anywhere. Using the latest technology, it takes the pain out of ownership and lets you just enjoy the drive because Custodian will take care of the rest. So if you believe life starts after 6,000 RPM, you need to be on Custodian. Join us now at www.custodian.club to sign up for early access and get ready to enjoy your car like never before.